Hello and welcome to the Classical Music Pod. This week we speak to the spiritual guru behind the synth-pop experiment The Art of Noise, Paul Morley, about his new book on classical music, A Sound Mind. Tim ambitiously analyses the taste of onions, provoking me to think about Debussy's piano music. And Sam is the guinea pig in the first edition of our prototype news quiz. We are shaking things up with news this week. Instead of the usual news beat, I've brought with me some incomplete stories, and I'm going to quiz Sam for the punchline. Punchline in its most literal sense, because most arts news we get at the moment is tantamount to being punched in the face. (laughs) Right, I'm ready for some pugilism. Hit me. On Friday night, the Berlin Philharmonic and their chief conductor, Kirill Petrenko, played their last concert before the month-long shutdown of the Philharmonie Berlin. What piece was added to the programme at the last minute in recognition of the impending blackout? Um, Well, it would be nice if it was a short ride in a fast machine, but I think it might be a bit longer than that if it's a month long. Uh, Perhaps strengthen you the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees, which is an ode to physicians on St Luke's Day. (laughs) Uh, But I expect it was Haydn's Farewell Symphony. No, it was John Cage, 4 minutes 33. Damn. I really thought I'd got that. Why didn't they do the farewell symphony? They could all have left one by one. That'd, that'd have been really funny, good, wouldn't it? But uh, but then four minutes thirty three feels strangely pertinent in a way. Mm. A shared silence. Shared silence. You know. Yeah. Contemplation. I'll you know I'll give Kirill that one. That's fine. Yeah. Right. Next, a recently published report by the charity Youth Music has found that what percentage of disabled UK music students are unable to find a teacher who meets their learning needs? Uh, I expect, given the uh, government's approach to arts, it's dispiritingly high percentage, isn't it? If there are any musicians out there with special educational needs, then I can point you towards City Lit's Inclusive Choir, which is run by yours truly. Mm. Come on and hang out in Hoban with me on Monday mornings. We have a great time. But as a guess of a percentage, 50%? Very close, 52%. I mean, that's an overwhelming majority, Tim. Don't forget that. Yeah, damn right. The report also found that whilst 80% find music making a positive experience, only 61% know how and where to access financial support to make it viable, and only 25% know how and where to source an adapted musical instrument. Still a huge amount of work to be done there, and many of these problems, sadly, will be compounded in the impending lockdown. Next question. Which conductor has very sadly died this week from COVID-19 at the age of 56? Oh, um... Russian guy, friendly face. Yeah. Uh, that's all I've got. Okay, Alexander Vedernikov, mm. who was the chief conductor of the Royal Danish Opera, music director of St. Petersburg's Mikhailovsky Theatre, and honorary conductor of the Odense Symphony Orchestra in Denmark. Mm. It came as 
a shock, this news, apparently, and has elicited some very moving responses from a lot of people who worked with him. I never saw him perform, but by all accounts, he was an absolute gem of a conductor. Yeah, we wish his family all the very best. Mm. Let's end the quiz on something a little more positive, shall we? Which English singer-songwriter has partnered with Yamaha to donate his £65,000 grand piano to a school, community, organisation or charity through a songwriting competition? That is a lot of money for a piano. So I assume it's someone who writes their songs or maybe performs them at the piano. That would make sense. You are correct. Um, is it star of that lockdown concert, Zelton John? I'm still Elton John's a good guess. It's actually Jamie Cullum. Ah, but he uses consonants, so I can't mistake him for Elton John. No. Uh, <laughs> he's a good guy. Good he's job, a good Jamie. guy. And so if you know an organisation who might be interested in winning his Yamaha S6 Grand Piano, they will need to write and record an original song telling the story of how they would benefit from the piano and then upload it to Yamaha's website by the 20th of November. Last question, also competition-themed. Which British vocal ensemble has relaunched a composing competition specifically for state school secondary students? I think I might actually know this one, which would be great, because I haven't got any questions right yet. Yeah, you are on uh, zero at the moment. Is it Voches 8? No! Oh, no! Oh, no, that's sad. It's the ORA singers. Oh, or Aura. Aura. I, well, I have presumed it was ORA or because it's capped, but... Aura? Aura. It's the Aura singers. Uh, the goal is to support young people who have not yet had access to specialist tutoring due to funding cuts and the pandemic. And it will be lead adjudicated by the group's president, the well-known musician Stephen Fry. And the 10 selected winners will be paired with a composer who will provide 10 hours of guidance and teaching. So Fantastic. The deadline for applications is Friday the 8th of January at noon. And there's a link in the podcast description if you know somebody who might be interested. Purposeful, purposelessness, the meaningful, meaninglessness, meaninglessness, I should say. Pur purposeful, pur 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 purposeful, purposelessness, meaninglessness, I should say. Pur pur purposeful, pur 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 purposeful, meaningless, pur 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 purposeful, meaningless, pur purposeful, meaninglessness, I should say. Classical music pod, I should say. Tim, I'm very excited Paul Morley is on the pod later. And a little while ago, you sent me a snippet of his new book where he raves about his love of Debussy. Yeah, he loves Debussy. And he does that ever so slightly unfashionable thing of trying to describe how music makes him feel. Yeah, it's an impossible task. How do you describe the taste of an onion? Uh, you know, we all experience the world differently. Articulating it is a fool's game. Mm, but Well, I would say an onion is sweet and mild, if I was going to... Jay Rayner, watch out, you know. Yeah, with a bite of acidity. Well, seeing as you've had a go with the olfactory end, I'll join Paul and try and describe what one of Debussy's most famous pieces makes me feel and see if I can explain how the composition causes those emotional reactions. It may be a perilous path to describe the feeling of moonlight without alerting the pretentiousness police, but I'll give it a go. Analysis. Excellent. Here is a clip of Debussy's own piano roll recording of Claire de Lune, which is a piece he began writing aged 28 in 1890, but didn't publish until 1905. Thank you. 
124 PC Plod saying we've got a potentially pretentious situation unfolding in South London. No trouble yet, we're keeping eyes on. Roger. God, it's a good old piece, isn't it? Can you believe they cut it from Fantasia? Walt, what an error. Surely worth Claude spending 15 years writing it. For sure. And forgive me, Tim, if my reactions to Claire de Lune are overly personal. If you, or indeed the listeners at home, have different pod opinions, then I'd love to hear them. Of course, you might feel differently from me about Claire. What I think is mad is that the musical, emotional language he creates is, if not explicit, at least roughly recognisable to most of us. Uh, You are forgiven and you have all the descriptive leeway you need. Very kind. Let's start with this opening then. To me, it has unavoidable shades of melancholy and memory. Memory. Not that memory. Sorry. By my reckoning, that sense of longing or absence is created in three ways. Missing beats, an inevitable descent to the home chord, and a naive little melody. Missing beats? Much like this. The first thing in the score of Claire de Lune is a rest. It's a lack of something that the performer reacts to. And then there are these empty spaces in the rest of the phrase. If not missing beats, then at least time for self-reflection. Did I leave my phone charger? Mm. Debussy makes us feel we're missing something by leaving things out of the score rather than by putting them in. Sam? I was leaving you space to reflect on what you'd said. How did it feel? Meta. Such ploys are knowing an adult, unlike this sweet little melody. For me, its sense of naivety comes from using the pentatonic scale. Like all the good folk songs from across the world. Yep, or of course, nursery rhymes. Is that childlike quality intrinsic to the music, or is it an association we've formed? I'm not sure, actually. I'm not sure either, but there's no avoiding feeling it. And now I invite you to come with me on an inevitable descent. I thought you'd never ask. That's the base of the first nine bars of the piece, just sped up a bit. Stepping down each time until the last two notes. And those last two notes are when we finally arrive on chord one, the home chord of the piece. Until then, we're fluting. Suspended and rootless, without affirmation, we become melancholy. Could be escalating, keep eyes on. In Claire, there's a very low number of 571 progressions. It's rare for us to get that clean sense of returning home that a dominant teutonic shift in harmony brings. Mm, a different mood, like a, a victorious Beethoven finale, might involve lots of 571s to give that sense of purpose. Exactly. And I'm going to go full F. Murray Abraham and talk over the notes in this next passage. I'll get my rusty squeeze box ready. We've just had a bass descent, but rather than arrive at the bottom, at home, instead Debussy changes direction. 
We're pushing onwards, out of our melancholia, each ascending semitone lifting us from the depths of despair, and just as we think we'll break free from our emotional shackles with a strong cadence that will at last bring us a sense of inner resolution, we have craved as refuge from the world's hurtling harms. The bass drops out. We don't get our 571, and instead we are left suspended once more, just as we began. That's an official warning. Musically, we've just arrived at the exceptional middle section. It is rather good, isn't it? Well, exceptional as in unusual, I'm afraid. Ah, I see. How is it odd? It's the moment in the piece where we get a sense of presentness. It's where what we didn't know we were missing arrives. Before that, we'd been prolonging something. We just didn't know what until now. Exactly. Not until this music arrives strongly on the first beat of the bar in the tonic key, and it feels full of energetic decoration. So you're saying it feels like whatever the thing is, it's happening there and then, rather than a memory of it. That is exactly what I'm saying. Our sense of busy presentness is helped by the arabesque figuring. Okay, arabesque. Debussy wrote several pieces called arabesque, but this kind of fiddly figure is called an arabesque as well. Presumably because it's Arab-like. Naam. But like the Arabic visual art that Debussy may have encountered, rather than Arabic music. Oh, okay. Yeah. Think the complicated patterns of the Blue Mosque in Beirut. This is the musical density equivalent. Exactly, and it's fluttering all around the listener, giving us no absence, no time to reflect. Mm, it's intoxicating. It is, and a lovely harmonic touch that adds to this sense of abandon is that the sevenths and ninths, which might resolve downward in a more traditional passage instead remain into the next chord. They're just incorporated. What might have been mistakes or slips in another era are incorporated into this dance. Then we return to the melancholy. And we are all the more melancholic for it. Listen to the return, this time with the minor chord three as an implied bass rather than the home chord. It's terribly sad. We were lost in the joy of a memory for a while, and now we remember that remembering, and acknowledge the futility in attempting to conjure any merriness in our current world. I'll keep it light, Samo. In fact, Debussy plays tricks on us, contracting passages and altering them slightly, like someone's memory fading or altering in the retelling. Mm, bringing a certain degree of tragedy to proceedings. Are you going to press it or am I? Let them reflect. Whew, thank God for steps or it could have gotten a little dark there. I know, sorry. But I'm going to end on a pair of positives. In compiling this little hymn to what Debussy makes me feel, I've come across two new things. I was ignorant of the fact that this piece is inspired by a poem of the same title by Paul Vallin. And what's mad is that it draws on the same themes and feelings I was going through listening to the piece. Debussy communicates these ambiguous feelings of fond memory and the sadness at the loss of that moment through music. Mm. We're not just talking bright and springy primary colour emotions here. No, there's a melting pot of mixed feelings in Claire de Lune, the poem and the piece. He's a genius to express shades of grey we'd struggle to identify with linguistic labels. Mm. What else did you find? 
Well, that there are tons of really quite good online videos called things like How to Compose Like Debussy. Well, that could be lucrative, couldn't it? Well, possibly. But what I adore about these sincere folks doing much the same thing as what I've done, working out what Debussy's technical tools are, is that when they put their ideas into practice on YouTube, usually when rearranging Happy Birthday, those same techniques just don't have the same feelings. Mm. There's something ineffable about how Debussy combines his palette. I think so. And as much as people like Paul or me can try and express those feelings, or how those feelings are aroused, there's always going to be a gap between what we can do with words and what old Claude can do with a bit of moonlight and the 88 keys of an old Joanna. Composer fact file, Claude Debussy. Born 22nd of August, 1862, in Paris. Claude's original name was Achilles, and he was the eldest of five children. His father owned a china shop, and his mother was a seamstress. By ten, he was studying at the Paris Conservatoire with esteemed musicians like César Franck. He never finished higher than fourth in his attempts to win top prizes as a pianist, and abandoned his dream of being a piano soloist. Aged just 22, Debussy won the Prix de Rome Composing Prize. But he was so unhappy on his move to Rome that he couldn't compose. Several of the Parisian critics didn't enjoy his masterpiece, Prelude à la Prémire d'un Faun, with one commenting, the Faun must have had a terrible afternoon. He had a number of scandalous affairs, broke off an engagement, and left his wife, Rosalie Texier, for Emma Bardak. The couple were forced to flee to England in 1905. Debussy was diagnosed with colon cancer in 1909 and eventually died in 1918. His last composition was written for his coal merchant to pay off his fuel debts. It's titled Evenings Lighted by Burning Coals. He once said, I'm trying to do something different. What the imbeciles call impressionism, a term which is as poorly used as possible, particularly by the critics. You got to pick a pocket or two. Largo al factotum from Giacomo Rossini's Barber of Seville, written in 1816. Grace Kelly by Mika, written in 2006. Paul Morley is somebody who's been on the fringes of my consciousness since my days as a Radiohead-obsessed teenager. He's been writing about music for the best part of 50 years now, starting out in the 70s for the NME and later moving into broadsheets like The Observer and The Telegraph, as well as writing several best-selling books. He used to be a regular panellist on Newsnight Review, which is where I first encountered him, and fans of BBC4 might remember his documentary series How to Be a Composer, in which he took a crash course in composition at the Royal Academy of Music, completing a string quartet at the end of his year's study. Paul's latest book, A Sound Mind, charts his journey into classical music, giving a history and a critique of the genre from his own unique perspective as a seasoned rock and pop journalist. I caught up with him a couple of weeks ago to talk about the book, and the following is a best bits montage of our conversation. 
Let's get straight into talking about your new book, if that's right, A Sound Mind, mm. which is a, a sort of patchwork of memoir, classical music history, playlists, polemic, as well as a collection of composer interviews. Did you have an agenda with this book? Who, who are you trying to reach? I think, I think at one point I do come down to the decision that it's probably a scene of one that consists of me. In many ways, the book, as much as it absolutely includes all that you've said, is also a work that can see... I've been writing about music for about 40-odd years now. I think in many ways it was something that was about how I still wrote about music, if you like. How could I find new ways to come into it? Especially because so many other people had started to write the kind of things that I did, about the kind of things I did. There were so many writers about music, and... Somehow, the loneliness of the writer, I prefer some, sometimes to feel that you're, you're on your own a little bit. You're not with the herd, if you like. You're thinking about things in a different way. I guess that's how I began, even though it was more popular music. Uh, the agenda thing happens in the book about midway through, where I'm often invited a few years ago, especially to panels and radio shows and discussions and debates about the relevance of certain music as if I did have a, a very specific agenda, as if I was on a mission. And of course, I do make manifestos and I do make statements. Uh, but it occurred to me then when I got into these discussions, how difficult it was really, in the, especially in the current age, to have any kind of agenda because everybody's flying around with all sorts of agendas and they're all crashing into each other. And uh, when I started writing, it was much simpler to have a, a way forward and a, a, a sense of mission. Whereas now I just felt that everything was colliding with each other. And one of the things I particularly liked about finding a space for myself writing this way was that I was outside some of the, uh, the collisions of fashion and, and, and outside of where everyone else was. I was, I was becoming divinely unfashionable, which I quite liked. So I, I guess to answer your question about the agenda, in, in one sense, what I'm, I'm saying more than anything is that the future of music could disappear to an extent unless there are people who still believe that they are gatekeepers and experts standing up for some kind of context for the music, if you like. Um, I'm not necessarily saying that people should think like me or follow me or believe me. Uh, what I'm suggesting, I'm, I'm, I'm sending out probes, if you like. There is this other way of thinking about music. It may or may not be valid for other people. It's certainly valid for me. Wouldn't it be interesting if in the future of writing about music, there was a kind of return to, to some kind of gatekeeper, if you like. We've, we've definitely lost the gatekeeper to some extent, and maybe that was valid, but maybe we're realising that without the gatekeeper guiding us through something and, and keeping a certain historical narrative flow going, that might not necessarily be a good thing. All music just becomes the same, if you like. It evens out. Mm. I found it really interesting that one of your biggest influences as a music writer is Virginia Woolf who saw music as a catalyst for thought. She's concerned with how music makes you think other things, and those are the things that are worth writing about rather than the little details and the technicalities of what's happening in the music. And you say in the book, you take it a step further, if you like, by saying that uh, a powerful piece of writing can become part of the, the performance. It, it, it completes it in a way. And I found that really interesting. I'd never considered writing about music from that angle, if you like. You said that's something that you've always tried to do ever since your days 
back with NME and and writing rock criticism back in the seventies. So, so in a way, are you just continuing the way that you wrote back then and applying it to a new genre, or are you trying to actually do something new with the writing? Well, well, both, and I think by the very nature of trying to continue that way of writing about music, it is in itself going to be new because it's always about trying to find new ways of writing about music. It's always been, you know, considered such an absurd thing to write about music. The, the legendary phrase, dancing about architecture, was always thrown at those that tried to write about music. But of course, it was not necessarily that you were writing about music, the technical elements of it, it's how it was put together. You were writing about the experience, the experience you were having, how it fitted into your life. You were responding to many different things, how it provokes your imagination. I'd always written about music in a way that was not going to necessarily satisfy those that just wanted a rating or a grading, which is, I guess, one of the things that I was worried about when it started to hit, you know, people reviewing, you know, at Amazon and reviewing in their own blogs. It, it started to be, get very reduced, if you like, to just a, a grading system. Uh, out of 10 and it was it was losing all that that other stuff that I felt was necessary both to begin an experience with music and to complete an experience with music is someone responding to it not necessarily that you will like or dislike it but how it fitted into a wider history into personal history into cultural history and I definitely did feel that that was missing from the enormous amount of writing that there now is in various blogs and on Amazon on review sites and also on the streaming sites when you used the word patchwork earlier, but it's, it is weird the way that a strange cobbled together way of writing about music has been stuffed onto the streaming sites, almost like some kind of slightly sort of fragmented encyclopedia that has no real sort of overall curatorial sort of point. It just is gathering bits from various sources to make it look like they're being informative. Streaming was obviously very valuable to me in terms of my own building a history of, of classical music because suddenly I, it was all available to me. But what I started to notice, and I'd noticed it obviously in the rock and pop and other worlds, that the writing itself seemed very dry and very withered, if you like, and, and separated from any context. And I thought that was interesting as well, that there seemed to be a lack, if you like, of, of a new way of writing about music at a time when music has become something very different, if you like, because of streaming. Mm. It seems that, that everyone was still trying to hold on to the patterns and shapes of the 20th century. When, when it was a very different thing, you know, in terms of how we received it, how we um, experienced it. So I, I think all these things were in my head as I started to think, maybe, you know, my last chance in a way as well to truly write about music in a, in a certain way. I guess you called it, I, I, I'm interested in that word patchwork, so I keep going back to it. But I, I guess I kept thinking, oh, this is my chance to do this. This is my chance to do this. And again, doing what I always did do, which was not trying to sort of be judgmental or objective and say everyone should think like me i think sometimes there's a feeling when you have strong opinions that you're ordering people to behave and believe the way they do when in fact what you're suggesting in a way is, is a constant provocation a constant challenging and testing of systems and i think there's a lot of that in the book in a, in a personal response to how i thought music was being written about in a way that often you'd find if you wanted to read about a record or an artist, 98% of the people out there all thought the same. So that as much as there was this vastness of how much was being written about it, all was very similar to, to the extent that it was almost becoming one voice. So I, I suppose to some extent in the way I was worried about streaming creating a evening out of music, I was worried that the way it was being written about was turning into one thing. I often say, you know, when people say to me, what are you listening to at the moment? I say Spotify as if it's the one act. 
which is, is, is kind of terrifying, but, but it's sort of true that it's all just being pushed into one place, all of music pushed into one place with one sort of signature. And I, I did feel writing was getting a bit like that. It's interesting that you say that you're worried about this evening out of music because of streaming, but reading the book, I got a sense that you, on the whole, were pleased that it had come along and that it was good for classical music in particular because it put everything in the same place and democratised music and was therefore much more accessible to people like you. But also because it's being sort of zoop beamed directly into your head from the cloud, it feels like a more natural way of imbibing a music that is more about something than pop, than pop music, if that makes sense. Is that a fair... Uh, summary of what you were trying to say. I, I, I think this sort of 40, 50, maybe 60 year period of popular music, which to some people's horror will stop. I always found that interesting that people assumed this period was eternal, but it was very fixed to its formats. You know, popular music and rock music very much came out of the record, the seven inch single, the, the album. It, it built its structures and its content around three minutes for the single, 35 minutes for the album. Was classical music had adapted itself over many centuries to somehow work its way through whatever the new formats were. It, it wasn't for the formats. And indeed, to some extent, classical music, for me, got slightly exiled during that period because it didn't necessarily work as well on a record. It wasn't. You heard a record by, by a pop or rock act, and the sound of it was so extraordinary. Whereas you heard the, 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 a classical record, and because it was never produced in the same way as a pop or rock record, it was sort of literally almost just recorded as it was, mm -hmm. as if the object was important, not the sound, then that sounded kind of weaker. And so I was very excited with streaming, first of all, because it enabled me to hear all of the music that previously seemed, for whatever reason, difficult to get to, or I had to climb through certain people's judgments that didn't particularly excite me. Suddenly I could find it for myself on streaming. And it was more exciting for me to feed some Shostakovich through my wireless, you know, wireless headphones or my wireless speakers around the house. That seemed very modern and exciting and almost what the music had existed for. But it seemed quite mundane and ordinary for music made on machines to be heard through machines. It, it didn't seem to have the same excitement because once you reduce the context of rock and pop, the, the record sleeves, the photos, the, the publicity, it, it, it kind of um, shrunk a little bit. Whereas the exciting worlds that I was finding, you know, both avant-garde and, and more traditional with classical music, it all seemed much more of a ritual suddenly. Suddenly I saw a future for the mobility of, of classical music because it wasn't going to be as harmed by this lack of context. It was a music made in people's minds that suddenly you could push straight into your mind. Mm. I guess the obvious counter to that is a financial one in that in the streaming age, a classical musician is arguably even more worse off than a pop musician because, as on Spotify, if you get paid by the number of plays you get on a track and your track is 20, 30 minutes long, like most classical tracks will be then you're going to get less money because people aren't hitting play so often so classical musicians are at a disadvantage there. to be honest you know 95 percent of pop musicians are as well i mean i, I yeah. i've got one yeah. or two tracks out there that earn uh, fractions of farthings per thousand play i'm fully aware of that but i guess also 
the, the practical side of it, the panic that there is at the moment about musicians being paid. I didn't want to get too bogged down in that. Yeah, that's an inevitability, and it, it, it kind of calls into question other. Th- I mean, other things are being called into question about about our future at the moment. And th- there was an extent I was uh, sort of world where I was dealing with it in a much more abstract sense. There's all this stuff that already exists. I think I quote. I think it might be salty. Well, certainly one of the great conductors who, who moaned in the 1970s about how already there was all the music that anyone ever needed. Why do we keep needing this new music? So to some extent, I'm taking what we have, almost accepting this might be it. Uh, and this is the shape of music. How does it go forward into the future? Because the practicalities of earning a living, they go back to the Middle Ages. To the med- you know, How do you earn a living doing this strange thing? I mean, we've got used to the idea now, certainly at some level, that some people, a, a small minority, make an enormous amount of music, often for just sitting back and letting their royalties roll in. This was always an anomaly, really, mm. coincided with the technology arriving and becoming a product, uh, an object that could be sold and, and banked up. Even in the book, when I did a rather strange speech to the Association of British Orchestras, celebrating the value and purpose of the orchestra almost at its very end, because it's such an unwieldy and practical thing. I was, I knew that I was being impractical. I knew that the people at the speech were probably looking for me to supply some ideas about how they would fund themselves. But I simply talked about the miracle of the orchestra. I knew and I admitted that I wasn't an expert enough to understand this side of it. I was simply saying what we have and what we have had it is an enormous amount. It will take many lifetimes to live through. And this also goes into the idea of what the narrative now is of music. You know, if a certain sort of music does stop now, if it does come to some crushing halt, like many things might do, I guess at the edges of the book, I'm, I'm suggesting, well, how do we deal with that in our lives? We will still experience music, but it will be in a very different way. It won't be in all the genres and niches that the streaming sites so try so hard to keep hold of. How will we tell stories and explain that to ourselves? So, I guess I'm taking one step forward and imagining almost that it has come to a kind of grind. Obviously, I started writing the book before this year, but there is a, a sort of sense that it was asking the loyalty we have to a certain narrative and to these genres and niches isn't going to last forever. It was already starting to crumble. This year has definitely accelerated that and obviously brought into question the practicality of there being so many musicians making money or expecting to make money out of music. Mm. there's a music metadata site called Music Brains that came up in a meeting this morning. Apparently they have 1.7 million registered artists, which just gives you an idea of the glut of musicians out there and highlights this problem. But it's not new either, I guess, because it's a theme that comes up a few times in your book. There was Schoenberg was concerned that too much music would wear it out. And then you also quoted Joanna McGregor, the pianist, who said that Maxwell Davis and Bert Whistle very quickly stopped listening to music because they were driven mad by the availability of it. Yes. They crave silence, which really resonated with me as well, you know, even coming down to having housemates who I love dearly, who will often put on music in the background and not listen to it at all and i just think oh well it was becoming it's, bec- it's becoming more and more a utility as well isn't it you know yeah that utility area of music was beginning to concern me as well the taking it for granted you know i consider it a kind of magical entity truly a kind of magic and so to see it taken so much for granted was also disturbing and it was interesting people talking to me about how you know some of the musicians didn't often listen to other music uh, 
to avoid a kind of influence, if you like, but also because there yeah. was so much, it was beginning to ruin it for them. What were they doing? Why were they doing yeah. it when there was so much of it? That's something that Anna Meredith, I remember her saying in an interview that she doesn't listen to music or, or tries not to listen to new music because she doesn't want to be influenced by anything, which completely took me aback. It seems so counterintuitive. Getting text ain't no fun. I pay less than a nurse or a teacher on the latest first run. Cause I'm Amazon. Source your books responsibly. You do point towards a future for sort of post-classical, I don't know what we're calling it, a future for classical music there. You, I mean, you identify in the book people like Paul Corley and Hausker and members of the Icelandic music collective and record label Bedroom Community. What is it about what these artists are doing that makes you think they're pointing the way forward? I, th- I think it was possibly rooted in, in some of the early thinking of Vianino, who again sort of is there in the book at various stages, yeah. which was this idea he was very interested in in the mid-70s when he would, uh, you know, alight on Steve Rice, but he was surprised how badly it was produced. Yeah, and he, he imagined a transformation of, of this kind of music if it was produced with as much power and imagination as, as pop music had been produced. And I try and break down the idea that if you were born before the Second World War, your instinct as a musician was to go into classical music. And there's a, a great sort of cue at the end of the 30s with all the Rices and Glasses and Onos and Burt Whistles that are all there. And then if you were born during the Second World War, when you come out of it as a teenager into pop music, you're, you're sort of not necessarily going to be interested in suddenly in classical music. Almost there's an end there to the classical generations that go all the way up to Burt Whistle. Obviously there's a few anomalies, but it's mostly true. And then... By the time of the 80s and 90s and 2000s, those going into classical music would begin to think fairly automatically about the recording studio, about electronics, about records that sound extraordinary. So that something like Kraftwerk, if you actually think of it as classical music, which to some extent I do, a kind of classical quartet imagining themselves making pop music and turning it into reality. But I think of it as classical music with the same sort of training that the musicians had. I think it's interesting that a kind of future in a more a more settled world than it is at the moment, where people were inheriting the tradition of classical music in a way that um, the serialists did, but they were also fascinated uh, by the recording studio as an instrument and used the recording studio. And I think the Hauskers and the Paul Callies, the bedroom community, those musicians that started to think about how the sound of their music was just as important as the content. And I think that's why I always had a particular infatuation and fascination with Debussy, Ravel, Eric Satie, because I always felt, again, in my own story, my own history that I've made up, that you start to see the first inklings of using the recording studio, even though they don't have a recording studio, in the way that music would be edited and layered and turned into a kind of montage by using multi-track mixing. And And it's almost as if Debussy especially is beginning to kind of hint, cast forward to a world where that starts to happen, where you could change the very nature of your music because you were more or less writing it in a studio that was enabling you to come up with with different ways of structuring and sonically layering your music. So I suppose in the book, when I decide that I've made a music scene in my own head in a world that doesn't really have music scenes anymore, it, it 
my consideration was that it was this combination of of the new classically trained musician also fascinated by electronics in the recording studio i always thought it was interesting that it was the experimental classical musicians like a milton babbitt or pierre boulez that first started to use computers in the 50s but it was when they were it was taken away from from that world the, the workshops and the analytical approach it was taken away from that by the rock and pop musicians that the possibility of what a electronics could do really took off you know somehow within classical music it was never it never particularly went beyond extra texture rather than actually contributing to the entire structure of a piece of music so i, I suppose my sudden optimism in the middle of it was that a combination of classically trained musicians understanding the orchestra but also understanding electronics and understanding what you could do in a recording studio even though the recording studio is kind of dead as well i thought there was there was a beginning of something that may or may not be of interest there but again as you can see very much avoiding the idea that that's an agenda that's just you know again of of how how the future might materialize mm. i find that image of debussy casting forward unwittingly to the era of the recording studio in the way that he builds up textures and montage rather than writing a straightforward melody and accompaniment. I find that really compelling. And actually, one of the passages that I underlined and read several times was your description of Debussy's La Mer, the sea, his tone poem, I suppose. I'll quickly read it out for listeners. You write, as with many great pieces of classical music, it is written about something that exists without humanity, which can make the music inexplicably moving and often deeply, strangely sad by placing within this mysterious, non-human existence a vivid, thinking human presence. The greatest classical music articulates the astonishingly lonely human presence that has found itself in the centre of an otherwise fathomless void. And just going back to what we were talking about earlier with regard regards to writing about classical music, stepping away from the technicality and describing how it makes you feel. I think that this is a really good example of that. And the reason it stuck out to me was because I so rarely see that in contemporary criticism and articles. And in fact, as I showed it to Sam, the guy I do the podcast with, and he said, yeah, that's because it, it would be seen as unfashionable now. Is that something that you are accused of a lot, writing in an old-fashioned style? Inevitably, which is something I was quite ex always expecting. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. And I, to be honest, I stopped writing initially about music at 26 because I thought I was too old. So I was always very, very amused to see people carried on around me. And I, yeah. I eventually had to join back in. So I've never been... One that's been afraid of that, especially because, you know, I was trying to fight away people writing about music when they were 23 as if they were too old. So absolutely, I understand that. And I guess that's one of the things that I'm saying. Yes, it's possibly from the 20th century, or it's a different way of writing about music when there were music papers and there were very few critics writing about it. But I don't necessarily seem to have seen anything replaced it that doesn't actually seem to be from the generation before the writing about music now reminds me very much of how music was written about before the arrival of rock journalism, which was itself sort of influenced by writing and theorists and mm. wasn't just in, in, in influenced by writing about music, if you like. So the so-called modern writing about music 
seems to me very old-fashioned because it reminds me of exactly what we were kind of um, fighting against Skating. in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. Uh, the idea that you put yourself at the centre of the story, if you like, seems to have gone out of fashion. Yeah. And also writing about music has become much more academic. It's become much more a subject that's trained, that's taught in universities, that has a, a history. So it's being boiled down to something else Whereas the original uh, writers about rock and pop, the very first in the 60s, when in, in a sense they were inventing a new kind of art, it, it wasn't necessarily coming out of universities. It was coming out of the underground press, if you like. It was coming out of the counterculture. It was more experimental. And if that seems old-fashioned now, I think it is because it fell out of favour. Probably I was to blame because it seemed too much about the person. It seemed too subjective. It seemed too wild. Sometimes people would shout at you when you'd finished a review or a piece, well, what did you think about the music? Because you were talking about other things, you know. And yeah, I, I, I was aware of the, the nature of that. And I think that's why in the, in the book itself, I was, it, it, it's a book about how do you write about music as much as anything else. And uh, I was simply finishing off or following through the way I write about music. And if I was 22 and no one, no one knew where I'd come from or what it was, it might not have the same sense that it's old-fashioned but if you are obviously known to be in your 60s and you're obviously known to be writing about music since about 1975 of course it's going to be old-fashioned because it, it, you would damn well hope it would be i mean the fight one has as, as you get older and these other people saying it's old-fashioned is that if you were originally influenced and inspired by the experimental or by the unorthodox you don't suddenly decide you're not going to carry that through. You want to keep carrying that through. It gets harder because no one wants you to be like that. They all want you to be like you were 40 years ago, you know. And you're trying to still kind of find ways to manipulate the form and, and think of other ways of, of writing about music. Uh, and I guess that's why I started trying to apply similar techniques as I would have done to writing about pop and rock in the 70s and 80s, the classical music, because I thought, well, maybe in that world, you know, I won't get so badgered for writing the way that I do. Maybe I could find a little bit of private space, you know. Mm. Which links into what you said at the start about the audience for this book being a scene of one, you and finding a new way into writing about music. It still seems valid, though, the idea that you just read out, because it's, it's something that occurred to me about a lot of classical music and the best rock, to be honest, you, you'll find it in Bob Dylan, that you'll get a sense that they're not fixed in time. They're observing, you know, nature and natural phenomena and mystery and magic from almost a timeless zone. You know, it's almost like the planet will carry on long after that's gone, but they're trying to put the music into the world in the way that the mountains and the trees and the atmosphere of the place is, the weather is, if you like. And, and to me, some of my most favourite pieces of music have that quality. You know, Debussy writing about the sea is not writing as such about the sea. He's writing about the extraordinary uh, weirdness that he can observe this phenomena. And he's, he's writing about his own imaginative response to that rather than making music that sounds like the sea. Mm. I'd be interested to know how many classical music journalists and musicologists had explored that point that you're making in their writing. I, I don't know, but I suspect not many have. And, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm blowing smoke up your ass, but perhaps it would benefit from that. Well, also, one of the things I noticed on my kind of brief kind of exploration of the institutions and establishments of classical music, if you like, and the radio stations and the magazines, that there was a great amount, 
and I think this had developed over the 20th century, a protection, if you like, of the, the assumed purity of classical music, that there was a nervousness about allowing anything in that might upset its authenticity, if you like, that, that it would all fall apart completely because it had been so threatened by other distractions and entertainments and arts that it was under some sort of att attack. And, and if you wanted to write about it in a different way, present it in a different way, not in a adding disco beat sort of way, but in a, in a, a less formalized way, if you like, um, I did find that people were very anxious that you were going to uh, tear it apart by even questioning a few of the assumptions about the music because they were so scared that it had to stay as it was, orchestras, the presentation of a symphony, operas, the, because if you started to fiddle about with it, it may, they, might, they might disintegrate. And I think that certainly goes for how you would write about it, you know, that if you started to write about it in a, a mischievous, playful, or even an overzealous way, there was almost an embarrassment, a kind of alarm. You're interfering with the, the ways that had kept it going for so long that, that you, might, you might disturb it. As, as a sort of almost English prudence there that comes yes. into play, isn't there? That's right. And I, and I felt that is the same with the way that the canon developed, that a lot of the music that had happened in the 20th century was very selectively chosen to fit in with the canon, that the canon itself started to disturb its own sort of preciousness, you know, and that the proms, the way that it protected a certain view of classical music without allowing anything in, even from the 60s and 70s, if there were occasional intrusions from something less obvious, they, mm -hmm. they were soon removed. And I thought that was interesting, the sense of anxiety, that if they allowed through anything from the outside worlds, that, that would pollute what they were doing. Mm. I don't know if you've ever come across the arts editor of The Spectator, Igor Taronich Lalik. He writes a lot about this protection of the canon and he, he really hates the proms because, because to him it embodies that. And you, you can see it in the classical music writing of The Spectator, the two reviewers they have, Richard Bratby and Alexandra Cochran, they're my two favourite classical writers in yes, the country yes. um, and abroad, Alex Ross, who you also mention in the book. And what I like about them is that they're not afraid to be slightly whimsical and slightly, yeah, yeah, whims whimsical with it. And I and yeah. you get the feeling that they they know about other music as well. I mean, I've yeah. got the feeling the classical world we would be prepared to know about uh, some of us about that music, but they weren't prepared to go out and find out how that threw different lights and angles on what they were interested in. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Alex Ross is interesting because I thought that the rest of his knowledge was such a, a great book, but I really felt it was going to be left lonely. And that it should be the kind of book that had many follow-ups. But the fact that it didn't also showed that there was a world where people think, well, that's been done now. We don't need to do it again. But for me, that kind of thing should be, you know, extended and developed and there should be others coming in. Mm. Uh, and a part of what I did, I suppose, to some extent was to create a kind of slightly, you know, restless companion, but certainly hope that that wasn't the end of that way of thinking of, of, of the music and writing about it. What a good book. What a good read Why don't you rent it from the library Insightful and engaging With a good laugh on every page Think I recommend to a friend Very final question for you, Paul, because I've taken up loads of your time already. You spoke in, right at the beginning of the book, you talk about your last piece of music, the what the last thing you'll hear before you die. <laughs> Have you come any closer to deciding what that might be, or is that an unknown? 
Well, you know, in the typical way that that I always postpone and never come to a resolution. I don't answer it in the book. I just pile in more pieces of music. Yeah. And I think that's pretty, pretty representative of how I feel that, that entering classical music, which in one sense was a, cha- a way of trying to find that last piece of music. I've just come across more and more and more, <laughs> uh, which is great. And therefore goes to show that, you know, people are always looking for new music. What's new, what's new. And I never wanted to say Fontaine DC. I wanted to say Shostakovich, Stravinsky, mm-hmm. you know, Harrison Burt whistle. This is what's new. And in that sense, I've discovered lots of new music, even if it's 200, 300 years old. I've discovered a new music scene, even if only in my mind. And what that's done is make finding that final piece of music, which I hope I get to choose as opposed to it being an accident, it's made it even harder. But but I like that. It's made, the even if just for me, again, the writing of the book worthwhile. Yeah. Oh, that's a nice way to end then. Paul, thank you so much for... For talking to me and giving me up giving me an hour of your time it's been really interesting and thank you f- yeah the book was brilliant i really enjoyed it uh, so i'm, I'm very pleased to hear you say that <laughs> yeah, no, say I really, it, yeah. <laughs> no i really mean it oh dear here i go again buying books faster than i read them no no the briefest of coming ups this week uh, and it's to a couple of friends of the pod Helen Charleston and the Jezueldo 6 gang, they've put together the London Sound Gallery, which is an online festival of six concerts over six Sundays in October and November. Sunday 1st, today, the day of recording, is going to be Abandonata. They're exploring a whole load of music about people who've been left behind, which, I don't know, might be quite a large segment. Yeah segment of society at the moment the tickets are online and you watch it all online obviously at the moment but the tickets are great because they mean that you can watch it all the way through to the 1st of January so if in the next month you've got a little bit of time coming up that might be a really nice way to fill it Mm. there are a few birthdays coming up in the first half of November Cooperans on the 10th Borodins on the 12th Fanny Mm. Mendelssohn and Copeland's on the 14th and Hindemith's on the 16th but the only one you really need to concern yourself with is Sam's, which falls on the 7th. <laughs> Any plans this Saturday, Sam? I expect it will be quiet, but I'll do my best to enjoy it as much as I can. Yeah, uh, I don't know. <laughs> no. Well, I'm not doing anything for you. Like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. Quick thank you before we go. I'd like to say a big thank you to Paul Morley for taking the time mm. to talk to me, Johnny Coward for setting that up, and Jamie Burkett, Jim, for putting me in touch with Johnny. So, yeah. The Holy Trinity. <laughs> and uh, a big thank you from me to Debussy for playing into that player piano a hundred and something years ago so that we were able to hear his version of Cledaloon. And uh, a big thank you to all the YouTubers that I nicked ideas off because there was some really good stuff out there. <laughs>